Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In Mark chapter 9, we have looked at the transfiguration of Jesus in verses 1 through 13. A child's restoration in verses 14 through 32. And now there's a series of lessons, a series of clarifications. Jesus will speak about humility and Jesus will speak about harmony. And later he will speak about hell. Humility is the secret of greatness and harmony is the secret of fellowship. And what you need to know about hell, you need to know how to avoid it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he said, when you speak of heaven, your face should shine like the angels. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. In this chapter, Mark has spoken that suffering leads to glory and power comes from faith and service leads to honor. In the previous passage, Jesus has spoken about ambition and service. And now Jesus will speak about harmony or toleration. And as you can imagine, in our culture and society, toleration is a buzzword. Um, For many people, toleration has become our culture's summum bonum. That's a Latin phrase which means the highest good or the greatest essential. But our culture means something decidedly different. When they speak of harmony and when they speak of toleration in the world in which we live in broad terms, our culture defines tolerance as assigning equal value to every belief system, even if that belief system doesn't square or harmonize with your own or square or harmonize with logic or square or harmonize with decency. Even the late President John F. Kennedy said, if we cannot end our differences, at least we can make the world safe for diversity. Iris had great respect for the president. We understand that we live in a world where people have broad opinions and different ideas. We live in a world where people are easily Offended. No wonder G.K. Chesterton said tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. You see, in the Bible, there's a limit to tolerance. 
in a world and in a culture where there are no limits, no boundaries, in a world where public school systems will hand out condoms to six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and 12-year-olds, there has to come a point where someone says, enough. We won't tolerate certain kinds of wickedness and indecency. The prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1 verse 13 writes, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? There are boundaries. There are limits. So what does Jesus have to say about harmony? What does he have to say about toleration? And once again, Jesus makes it about himself. He makes himself the basis or the ground or the foundation for harmony and toleration. Jesus invites you to consider all things in relationship to him. What do you say about Jesus? Do you oppose Jesus? Do you show kindness to the followers of Jesus? That might shock you and surprise you. You might think, what, what gives him the right to base all of reality and truth and future on him? You die and come back to life, and guess what? You have instant credibility. You have instant credibility. We understand that people have beliefs, and they engage in behavior quite different from our own. Sir Arnold Lunn writes, the modern theory that you should always treat the religious convictions of other people with profound respect finds no support in the Gospels. Mutual tolerance of religious views is the product not of faith, but of doubt. I'm going to invite you to do something that perhaps no one has ever invited you to do before. Believe the words of Jesus. Believe the statement of Jesus. Believe the message of Jesus. Believe the ministry of Jesus. Look what Jesus says. Read it for yourself. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Now John, this is the beloved John. This is the apostle John. This is the John who will lay his head on the breast of Jesus at the last supper. Says, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. What's the first question you should ask yourself of this statement? Remember where we are in Mark's gospel in chapter nine. I'm going to suggest that you ask this verse a question. John. What prompts your question? Why are you asking this? The answer can be summed up in a single word. Guilt. Why do we know that? Do you remember the context in verse 37? Jesus said, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John's feeling guilty. And the reason why John's feeling guilty is because he and the other apostles and disciples have rejected somebody. Remember, Jesus is going, hey, 
Find reasons not to exclude. Find reasons to include. Apparently, they had seen a man or they had heard about a man who was ministering in the name of Jesus. He was doing something remarkable. He was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And the disciples decide to put a stop to it. Why? Well, because he's not a part of our group. He's not a member of the Christian gold card club. It's sort of like when you go to DIA and you're lugging all of this luggage and you're trying to make it to the terminal and you see the gold card club where you get to sit and rest and be refreshed. And you try to walk in and they go, you're not a member here. Go away. John's conscience is stirred. Apparently, whoever this person was, he wasn't licensed and he wasn't ordained by their denomination. He had not received his credentials from their leader. He apparently had not been directly taught by Jesus. And the apostles couldn't be sure that this man was as strong and faithful and committed to the teachings of Jesus as them. What were they really thinking? What was really going through their mind? Could they have been thinking that if this man didn't stand with them, that he might be standing in their way? And so they say to him, stop. Stop what you're doing. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Imagine asking a person to stop casting out demons. And I want you again to think about the context. Earlier in Mark chapter 9, had nine certain disciples failed miserably at casting out demons? Oh, you're laughing because you remember. Oh, yeah, there was that story about the demon-possessed boy, and no matter how hard they tried and no matter what they do, they couldn't help the boy. Remember, the chapter doesn't hide the faults and the foibles and the failures of the disciples. Peter had stuck his foot in his mouth in the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples were thwarted in their effort to deliver the demon-possessed boy. The disciples had argued over who would be the greatest in Christ's kingdom. And now John hints at this sectarian spirit, this misguided loyalty. Last night we showed a film at our church called Indoctrination. And it was interesting, as often happens when people come to our church, this person said, oh, I I listened to you on the radio and... I don't always agree with what you have to say. And I said, it must be an awful burden to always be right. I I feel bad for you. I said, but if I agreed that you were right, then we would both be wrong. (laughs) No, I didn't say that, but I wanted to. I wanted to say that. People are easily offended. Note, John says, we saw someone who does not follow us 
and we forbade him. The implication being it was a joint effort of rejection and exclusion. And in the passage, we're not left with the impression that the man was teaching false doctrine or that he was living in sin. He simply hadn't joined with them. Someone wrote, they drew a circle that shut me out. Rebel, heretic, thing to flout, but love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took them in. (laughs) The famous Puritan preacher Jeremy Taylor wrote, It is a hard case that we should think of all Papists, he's talking about Catholics, and Anabaptists and Sacramentaries to be fools and wicked persons, unquote. It's hard to not think that your way is the only way. But I want you to do a little investigation. I want you to join with me and ask the question, what might we discern from the limited information that we have about this person? Minimum, do you suppose that the person had been influenced by Jesus? What do you think the answer is? It seems impossible that you would try to cast out demons in in Jesus's name and not have some sort of regard for Jesus. Do you think it's possible that he knew something about Jesus? What do you think the answer is? Apparently he does. Now, again, if you have the ability to cast out demons in Jesus name, would you characterize that person's faith as weak or strong? I, I think so. This isn't a guy who goes, hey, you know, I want to be a follower of Jesus and I want to get close to the apostles and I want to get close to Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go pick up cigarette butts in the parking lot in the hopes that someone will notice what a great servant I am. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm happy if you pick up cigarette butts in the parking lot. But this person attempts something. We're not talking about something common. Something minuscule, something unremarkable. He's casting out demons. Unfortunately, I've had a couple of run in with demons. And I got to tell you, it's not for the faint of heart. In the Old Testament, Joshua came to Moses upset that Eldad and Medad were prophesying in the camp without Moses' permission in Numbers chapter 11, verse 27. And, and Joshua comes running in and goes, Moses, Moses, you're never going to believe what's happening. A guy is holding meetings. He, a guy is talking about God and the power of God and the presence of God. He's holding meetings without permission. Moses, you've got to make him stop. And do you remember Moses' response in Numbers chapter 11? Moses said, I wish to God that every human being was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the words of God. Loyalty is good. But misguided loyalty is not good. Abraham Lincoln famously said, it's not Best to swap horses while crossing the river. You know, when you go into the river, you should probably stay on the mount. Or as my granny would say, dance with the girl you brought to the dance. (laughs) Carl Augustus Menninger wrote, quote, loyalty means not that I am 
you or that I agree with everything you say or I believe that you're always right. Loyalty means that I share a common ideal with you and that regardless of minor differences, we fight for it shoulder to shoulder, confident in one another's good faith and trust and constancy and affection, unquote. So when are we most likely to reject one another? When are we most likely to not live in harmony or to be intolerant? I'm going to suggest to you that misguided loyalty to a leader or an organization or a denomination. Loyalty is good, but misguided loyalty is not good. The conviction that our belief and our position must never be questioned. As a matter of fact, it's probably important that our beliefs, our positions are always questioned. If the person doesn't agree with my belief or conviction, that doesn't make the person unacceptable. The need for unity may cause people to exercise intolerance. If a person opposes or threatens our organization or acts against our beliefs and that person all of a sudden becomes unacceptable, our sense of prominence or superiority, if we exalt ourselves, if we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Jealousy and envy can cause intolerance. When a person looks at another person and says, I like the way that person thinks and I like the way that person speaks. As a matter of fact, they're a more effective thinker and they're a more effective speaker than me and we become jealous. Or a sense of pride or a sense of arrogance or a sense of thinking that we're better or we're more holy. Now, I want you to do the math. The man ministered in the name of Jesus. He served in the name of Jesus. And he's rebuked and stopped by the followers of Jesus. What he was doing was unacceptable to them. But quite possibly, it never occurred to them that he was acceptable to him. And this becomes an important point. Because harmony and toleration seems to begin with this very simple and fundamental statement. How does Jesus feel about what this person is saying and doing? What's Christ's opinion? We're sometimes left with the uncomfortable position of condemning what Jesus affirms, of exposing what Jesus wants to remain hidden, of hiding what Jesus wants to expose. We, like the disciples, may set ourselves up as the judge of others, but our judgment isn't about good and evil. It isn't about right and wrong. It isn't about sin in the camp. We judge others with insufficient information. We deny another person's right to serve Jesus. Now, I want you to think this through. If we deny their right to serve Jesus, are we automatically keeping someone who could be served from being served? By refusing the man's ministry, they were also refusing everyone who could be ministered by him. The disciples' example promoted not only a spirit of disharmony and intolerance, but also it was a misrepresentation of Jesus. And that becomes part of the point that I think I want to make with you. It isn't just simply about being contrary. 
It's about what does Jesus have to say? We're not in the business of ruining other people's ministries. We're not in the business of ruining their lives. We're not in the business of undermining the people that they serve. We are not in the business of causing unnecessary strife or ungodly and unbiblical divisions. And we're not in the business of creating hurt or pain or shame. Shouldn't church be the safest place of all for you to go to? Shouldn't this place be the one place at least where you get to honor and love and serve and express your affection for Jesus? So Jesus gets a biblical basis for toleration. It's a right view of himself. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. What is the response of Jesus? Do not forbid him. Christ forbids this kind of forbidding. If the person has enough faith in Jesus to work a miracle or cast out a demon, Jesus is suggesting, hey, this person's on my side. Working against Satan, the person who has this kind of confidence in the person and work of Jesus won't typically turn around right away and go on Bill Maher's program and speak evil of Jesus. Or entertain in our culture or hold an unbelievers rally in Washington, D.C., speaking all kinds of evil, hateful, wicked things about Jesus. I don't know what it is about Easter season and Resurrection Sunday, but people come out of the word work to to, to say the Bible's not true. Jesus isn't real. He didn't really rise from the dead. You Christians are a bunch of nut jobs. The implication is that we're to be patient. We're to be careful Even if that person has less than a perfect understanding of truth or essential doctrine, the point that Jesus is making is the person has some regard for Jesus. This person has some regard for Jesus. Let us see if we can cultivate that regard. Even the unbeliever will typically have good things to say about Jesus. The Muslim believes that he's a good prophet. The Hindus believe that he's the incarnation of some avatar. Even people in, on the outside are really reluctant to call Jesus a wicked person or a satanic person or, or something like that. Harmony is a kind of a lost virtue. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, respect everyone, love other believers, honor God, respect the emperor. When he wrote those words, Nero was the emperor. Can you imagine in, in 60... A.D. And people go, do you think Nero's the Antichrist? Pretty good, pretty good candidate. Impales Christians, covers them with pitch, lights them in order to line the Appian Way. If anyone was a candidate for Antichrist, it was this guy. William Lyon Phelps, who was an author and an educator who taught briefly at Harvard and for a very long time at Yale, Um, 
During the 1930s and 40s, he was the son of a Baptist minister. He had a popular radio program before World War II. He said, this is the final test of a gentleman. His respect for those who can be of no possible service to him. When you are willing to extend kindness and respect to someone who can offer you nothing, give you nothing, provide Nothing for you. That's the point. So what does it mean to speak evil of Jesus? Remember, Jesus makes that remarkable statement in Matthew 28, 18. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That would be outrageous. Unless it were true. When Jesus says all authority has been given in heaven and on earth, he invites all of heaven and he invites all of earth to make every single decision on the basis of who he is and what his message is. Colin Urquhart wrote, if you accept the authority of Jesus in your life, then you accept the authority of his words. Malcolm Muggridge wrote, what will finally destroy us is not communism or fascism, but man. Acting like God. There's the one notable exception. What if one man is God? The person Jesus Christ. Jesus invites everyone to do everything in relationship to him and the basis of harmony and the basis of toleration at first becomes this very simple and fundamental thing. What does this person have to say about Jesus? So the man or the woman who speaks evil of Christ proves that he or she is the enemy of Christ and the enemy of the gospel. Paul, writing to the Philippians, said in chapter 1, verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul makes camaraderie on the basis of what this person has to say about Jesus. He's speaking evil of our government or of this president or of this economy or of this or of that or of this or of that. But Jesus makes toleration and harmony on the basis of what does this person have to say about Jesus? Romans chapter 15, verse 1, Paul writes, We then who are strong ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And look what else he says in verse 40. Another biblical basis for toleration. For he who is not against us is on our side. Some have suggested a contradiction. They turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, and they say, look what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Is this a contradiction? No, there's no real conflict. 
In Matthew's gospel, the issue is whether Jesus is indeed the son of God or a demon empowered human being. In Matthew's gospel, the religious leaders have accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. And with such a fundamental fundamental issue at stake, anyone who is not with him is against him. And whoever does not work with him is working against him. Here in Mark's gospel, that's not the question. It isn't a question about the person of Jesus. It isn't about the work of Jesus. It isn't even about the message of Jesus. It was simply a matter of association and service to Jesus. And so Jesus says, in those instances, we exercise tolerance and love. Whoever is not against the Lord Jesus in service must be against Satan. But what I want to suggest to you is that Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel has at least one thing in common, which both passages unequivocally state. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't be apathetic and indifferent about Jesus. You might try to be. You might say, I don't want to decide about Jesus. I don't have all of the facts. I don't have all of the information. I don't want to come right out and proclaim that I'm a card-carrying Christian. I don't want to come to the cross. I don't want to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't. I, I, re, I prefer to be sort of like a theological Switzerland. I don't want to... Pick Germany and the Axis powers, and I don't want to pick the Allies. I don't want to pick anybody. But that's not what the passage says. Because whatever else harmony and tolerance means for the Christian, it can't mean indifference and neutrality towards the person of Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention. To two little words in the passage in verse 40. For he who is not against us is on our side. Look at that little word us and that little word our. Does Jesus have a mouse in his pocket? Why do you think he's using us and our? A person's attitude and actions toward Jesus and his church are to be observed. The us and the our that he's talking about is me and you. When he says us and our, he is talking about Peter, James and John. He's talking about Matthew, Philip and Bartholomew. He is talking about all of the people who are following him and will follow him in every age. So what does this mean? What does it mean It means that what you think about Jesus is important, but also what you think about the church is important. In Christ's mind, both he and the church are identified with each other. And people who have a low view of the church also have a low view of Christ. No matter what they tell you, they might say, hey, you know what? I love Jesus. He's great. I love everything that he says and everything that he does. I think that the Bible is great. I just think you Christians are bizarre. That's where I get hung up. It's you Christians. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that people who have a low view of the church cannot have a high view of Christ. Why? 
Because the church is something that Jesus invented. The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. The Bible says that the church will be the constant companion of Jesus. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says, Do not, do not, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. The Bible says that we being many are one, joined and fitted together, that you were meant to express your giftedness and your calling in the context of a church. Both Jesus and Paul taught that those who violate the integrity of the church and who refuse to repent should be excluded from Christian fellowship. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. And so here's the point that is being made. The anonymous exorcist was bringing glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. So whatever it means to oppose Jesus, it isn't just simply the opposition of him or his message, but it's also the opposition of everyone who follows him. Now, I need to put this in a context that everyone will understand. Is it possible that a Christian can be stupid? I think, you know, the answer is yes. Is it possible that Christians can say and do stupid things? I think that the answer is yes. Is it even possible that Christians can do wicked and sinful things? I think the answer is yes. So he's not talking about tolerating wickedness and sinfulness. That's not what he's talking about. We don't determine a person's eternal future and we don't have the power to consign anyone to hell. But the Bible gives the authority to discipline the unrepentant in the church in order to maintain the integrity of the church. We are to judge false teachers and false versions of Christianity. We are obligated to reject false doctrines and false revelation. We are obligated to reject those who bring false revelations and false doctrines. We are obligated to identify false teachers by name if necessary. Harmony and Tolerance doesn't extend to false teachers and false versions of Christianity. Jesus makes harmony and tolerance on the basis of what do you think about me? What do you say about me? And then he says what they do for you. Now, I want you to just think this through in Mark chapter nine, verse 41. Look what it says for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The Lord reveals the third basis for harmony and toleration. Now, remember what the first two are. Number one, harmony and toleration is what does this person say about Jesus? Do they speak evil about Jesus? That's basis number one. Number two, do they oppose Jesus? And this is number three. Do they show kindness to the followers of Jesus? By the way, that speaks volumes. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, Now, giving a cup of water in a dry desert may not seem like a big deal. But when you live in the Middle East, if you're in North Africa, in the Sahara Desert, 
in a desert that's the size of the United States of America, a desert that would go from Maine to Florida, that would go from New York to Washington, that would go from California all the way down to Louisiana and Texas, a body of land as big as the United States covered with dirt. In the Middle East, giving a person a cup of water isn't simply an act of kindness. Sometimes it's an act of survival. What's interesting about giving a person a cup of water is anyone who has a cup of water is capable of doing it. But casting out demons is a pretty big deal, isn't it? So whether the kindness is very small or whether the kindness is incredibly large, even the smallest kindness done in the name of the Lord Jesus doesn't go unnoticed or unrewarded. And that should tell you something, that Jesus is watching everything that you say and everything that you do and every kindness that you extend and every kindness that you refuse to extend. And again, I want to draw your attention to the phrase, because you belong to Christ. This is the cord that binds all believers into the same camp. Because you belong to Jesus. Not that you belong to the Catholic Church. Not that you belong to the, to the Protestant Church. Not that you belong to the conservative party or the liberal party. It says that you belong to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the basis of friendship and fellowship among the believer. And so when we ask the question, who, who belongs to Christ? Jesus defines the terms. In John 3, he says, you have to be born again. Throughout Mark's gospel, he says, those who have repented of sin and trust him as Savior. For the person that Jesus has said, come to me, believe in me, love me, abide in me, take up your cross and follow me. The same Jesus who said, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The same Jesus says, worship God in spirit and in truth. Always pray. Don't lose heart. Don't be anxious about the necessities of life. Don't be frightened by the threats of human beings. Humble yourself in childlikeness, servanthood, and brokenhearted boldness. Do the will of my Father. Trust Jesus. Enter the narrow gate. Make sure your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Love your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you. Lay up treasure in heaven by sacrificially and generously giving. Because you belong to Christ. Once we understand who belongs to Jesus, we can refrain from petty rivalries and divisive jealousies in Christian service. We're to live under the umbrella of the words of Jesus and the New Testament writers. We have to constantly be reminded that our words and deeds affect each other. We can stumble and offend one another. And in so doing, cause lifelong spiritual damage. So Jesus gives two broad commands. Be kind to each other. And then the opposite. 
please don't stumble and offend each other. Because stumbling and offending each other is like hanging a large millstone around your neck and then inviting a deep dip in a deep ocean. Don't do it. Don't let a person lead you astray off the path of holiness and righteousness and truth. By the way, there were two kinds of millstones and during the time of Jesus. There was a millstone that, that people would use where they would grind corn or grain by hand. And then there was a larger stone that they would use. They would tie it to a donkey and the donkey would, would turn the stone stone in order to grind greater amounts of grain. The kind that Jesus is talking about being wrapped around your head is the great big one, which promises no hope to surface. And so we as Christians are to exercise kindness to those who disagree with Jesus and who disagree with the gospel. It's one thing to disagree about Jesus, and it's another thing to disagree about the gospel But never put yourself in in the place of the gospel or Jesus. You're not Jesus. And your beliefs or necessarily your opinions about everything don't really matter. You see, sometimes we confuse our deeply held convictions to be the convictions of Jesus. And it may come as a shock and as a surprise to you. That the things that you hold precious and the things that you are so certain about may not be things that Jesus is so certain about. You have the right to be right about Jesus and the gospel. But I'm going to ask you maybe the hardest question that's ever been asked to you. Is it possible that you are capable of believing something that's wrong? All you have to do is just figure out one time in your life when you were. I was wrong about that. And it should give you a sense of instant humility. And a deep desire to exercise harmony. The Bible says, be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Loving one another. Forgiving one another. Paul wrote, do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so we exercise humility and harmony and kindness. Dorothy Sayers wrote, in the world, it's called tolerance. But in hell... Despair. The sin that believes in nothing and cares for nothing and enjoys nothing and hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die, unquote. Toleration isn't believing everything. And it isn't believing nothing. Harmony. Toleration. What does this person say about Jesus? Does this person oppose Jesus? Is this person kind 
to Christians. It was Frederick William Faber who wrote, Kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, and learning. And I'm going to suggest to you that kindness has probably led more people to Christ than every sermon that's ever been preached. It's because you decided from your heart to care about somebody. Harry Thompson wrote, Be kind. Remember that everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. That woman whose husband has left her, who's left to raise her kids all by herself. That person who's been diagnosed with cancer. That person who has lost their child to murder or disease. For that person that you're meeting who is in the midst of something horrifying, dark, bleak. Be kind. Be generous. Be gracious. So the servant's call to harmony is a call for people to think rightly and speak rightly about Jesus and not to oppose Jesus and to be kind to the followers of Jesus. That's the kind of toleration and harmony that the Christian is called to. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, we know that harmony and toleration has boundaries. There does come a point where the border butts up against conviction. And Lord, we aren't free to say whatever we want about Jesus. And we aren't free to oppose Jesus. And we aren't free to be unkind to one another. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be generous and respectful and kind. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray that we would want more than anything to be right about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.